0: This is Street Signals, a weekly conversation about markets and macro brought to you by State Street Global Markets. I'm your host, Tim Graff, head of macro strategy for EMEA at State Street, based in London. everybody so we have a fed meeting next week and this one is building up to be a bit more probably about the messaging rather than the move or any policy change that might be coming the fed of course skipped a move at their june meeting but a 25 basis point hike at this one looks pretty much nailed on the main question is whether the recent data support the market's assumption and in fact the market's pricing that this is the last hike in the cycle and I think it's pretty easy to make the case in either direction, like a classic economist. Uh, last week's CPI data showed that headline inflation is falling rapidly now, but core inflation, while also falling, is actually proving stickier and is still you know, well above the Fed's target. The labor market is probably not as tight as it once was, but it still looks healthy enough, and wage growth is still robust. So, you can't rule out further second round effects that support inflation at a higher level than the Fed's comfortable with. And thankfully, to talk through all of this, we have our resident Fed scholar, Marv. I'm going to call you a scholar to discuss this (laughs) uh, this week. And Marv's going to also give us his views on Fed policy, any changes that we should expect next week, as well as maybe for the remainder of the year, what that means for rate markets and their rate pricing. Maybe we'll even get him to talk about rate vol. Who knows? Marv, Thanks for being back with us. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us before this meeting.
1: It's always wonderful to be here. You know that.
0: Yeah, well, you know, I I try to be a good host. So look, Marv, it does sound and, you know, there has been tweets to this effect from Fed watcher Nick Timuros that a hike is all but a certainty for this meeting next week. We have seen confirmation that inflation is falling. As I mentioned, the labor market's still healthy, maybe showing some signs of a little bit of deceleration so let's assume they deliver the 25 what's the message going to be that accompanies that
1: you know certainly you provided um the challenges that the fed is facing um better than than ultimately i could um and then uh there is a job that's opening up in st louis so maybe you want to apply for that one because yeah. it's uh <laughs> it's, it's it really is a great description but so, so what the fed will do versus what they should do, uh, at least in my mind, is probably a little bit different. You know, I think what they're going to do is ultimately stay the course because, as we often say, one data point doesn't make a trend. Uh, CPI was encouraging. The jobs data is certainly moving in the right direction, but they're not there at 2% yet. And probably more important is that um, it might take uh, a different type of approach to feel comfortable that you're going to be at 2% uh, from an ongoing perspective. But certainly the headwinds that they were concerned with earlier this year around banking, around you know consumer that's showing more and more stress, around uncertainty that student loan payments are going to start again for at least uh, a fairly large swath of the economy creates an environment where they just don't know how that's going to evolve and whether or not um, that will push us over the uh, uh, over the edge, if you will. So while I think that a pause is appropriate at this point, and you know, um, I wouldn't mind hearing them say that all of those headwinds are a concern. I don't think they're going to. Um, what I do think is problematic for them is the amount of liquidity in the system. So if it were up to me, I would be saying that um, you know we we've got all these concerns. The real economy is showing aspects of. The lag in a in a shorter fashion, but we're going to actually accelerate uh, balance sheet reduction. Um, I don't think they're going to do that, uh, so it's going to be stay the course. It's going to be higher for longer, um, and they're going to keep optionality, if you will. But they're probably not going to signal that September is is a done deal the way they have in the past. So well, we're going to talk about the balance sheet, and we w- I want to talk about liquidity.
0: And I want to talk about QT and that pace, because I feel like that is really interesting and is maybe the next real policy change we might get. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Everything you said is, I think, something we all, you know, the Fed understands lagged effects of data and I I think has some sympathy, actually, of the view that they, they should be done. And the June skip, they took a lot of... I'm not going to use the word I was going to use, but they they took a lot of guff, Marv, <laughs> about that <laughs> and the messaging around that, knowing that they still needed to hike and, and putting the dots in and all that. And why don't you just go ahead and do with it? But I would ask the opposite question then. Outside of a disaster, the Fed's forecast for core PCE at the end of this year, will we will get there most likely with no further adjustments. So why... Bearing all that in mind why aren't they done now what is it about that kind of sticking the landing with another 25 basis points that really does anything
1: yeah I, I mean I mean for certain um there is a good case that they should be done you know I, I could I can make that case easily particularly um, given some of uh, the headwinds that I think are out there the fed and most monetary policy authorities have a tendency to over tighten so um mm. you know we're, we're always we're always struggling uh with that but even uh, you know this time around, we've got probably more uncertainty than we've had before from a structural perspective i don't think that there are a lot of people out there that believe the jobs market is all of a sudden going to come in and you know we've got structural issues with the with the size of the labor force post pandemic um that still creates a lot of challenges so from the perspective of actually getting to a sustainable 2%, you know, it probably does make sense for them to keep that tightening bias out there, if anything verbally, um, and certainly from a higher for longer perspective. But you know, it, it takes a bit of um, guts, if you will, to say that that we're done now when, when the data mm-hmm. is just moving in the right direction. And again, we only have had one data point um, that kind of gets us there, even though even though it was a pretty encouraging number. Yeah. And that's the thing. Like, the,
0: uh, Granted, they had the meeting the day before the, I guess it was the May CPI release, but you've gone from 4.9% year on year to 3.3% year on year in two releases. And of course, a lot of that's base effects, which in in itself is interesting. We've talked about, oh, don't let base effects do your heavy lifting for you. But in fact, that's exactly mm-hmm. what's happening. And that's what I think makes it so interesting is you are heading in the right direction in a lot of senses. You're doing it without breaking the labor market the way that Powell himself had warned about thinking, we're going to have to break something to get inflation down. And actually, we're getting inflation down not to target, fair, you know that's we're not there, but we're getting there and doing it without breaking things. In fact, I think the unemployment rate is lower, I know it's lower, in fact, than when he actually made comments to that effect. So. It's all lagging data, which is what I think makes it all the more curious that they're continuing to likely push for not just a hike next week, but perhaps one in September. Anyway, actually, I, you've answered the question, so I'm not going to belabor the point. I wanted to think about now the pricing that the market has beyond this year. The market is pricing for rate cuts, of course, but the Fed has effectively put them off doing so for this year. It's now into mid 2024. And that is pretty much, when you look at the dots, it's there's there's minor degrees of variation here, but that's basically what the Fed is telling you as well. That implies though, a much longer wait between the last hike and the first cut than is normal. And the Fed is kind of, or sorry, the market is pretty much in line with the Fed here for the first time in a long time in this cycle. But in your mind, if there's an error, to be had in that. Which direction is that error? Are markets not pricing higher for longer or for long enough, I should say? And, and are the Fed themselves pricing the dots too low? Or is this all going to happen sooner and the Fed and the markets are just getting this wrong and not expecting it as quickly as it might actually have to come?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think the dots are correct. Ultimately, I I think the market pricing of the dots, if you will, um, you know, a little bit of a fight, you know, certainly not putting in the second 25. I, I think that's correct. I think there are enough headwinds that are out there. What's going to be a challenge, I do think, is that things are just taking a lot longer to get to where they need, you know, whether it's the labor market perspective, whether it's really kind of pulling out the excess liquidity in the system. So I would say higher for longer is it would be my bet that it's going yep. to take longer before the Fed is comfortable starting the normalization process. You know, I do think that higher for longer means a harder landing, ultimately, It um, does yeah. create more banking stress. Uh, so once we get there, we're probably going to wind up um, talking about policy mistake, you know, once again. Um, but it's not going to be clear that the jobs market is actually um, at a point where kind of that wage pressure, which while it hasn't accelerated is, is still not there for a consistent 2% inflation number in an economy that's very service-driven. Um, and you know, the the, the lag effect of housing is something that everyone talked about. And when you kind of look at the encouraging shelter data, a lot of that shelter was away from home, so kind of hotel cost, if you will. Um, yeah. That core shelter, whether it, whether it comes from rent or owner-occupied, um, still has a ways to go before you get to a consistent 2% type of environment. It's interesting.
0: So we're talking about they, they could be done, but actually higher for longer. And so it's, it's, it's a really interesting message. And and to be fair, it, I, I kind of think that's probably what the Fed is thinking as well. It's, it's just that last little bit of fine tuning that I think is is maybe a bit questionable. But anyway, I think we've, we've covered the rate side. The balance sheet, you brought up the balance sheet. And I think this is really interesting because I hadn't quite appreciated in that in percent of GDP terms, we have now gotten the balance sheet down to the size it was, not pre-COVID, of course, Not there was a huge expansion in the immediate aftermath of COVID, but the QE aspect from June 2020 onwards, again, in percent of GDP terms, not in absolute nominal terms, but in percent of GDP terms, we've unwound that. And that's with all of the expansion we had related to SVB, that has now fully unwound as well. Thinking where do we go from here then, you know, if you assume, say, like 3% nominal growth and the pace of QT continues, we get back actually to where we were in 2018. So actually back to pre-COVID levels in percent of GDP terms in a couple of years. Is that their goal here?
1: You know, I, I think from the balance sheet perspective, the Fed always approaches it that the balance sheet has to be the right size for the economic activity that they see. Yeah. Um. And, and, you know, that's kind of this nebulous, uh, broad concept that gives them a lot of flexibility. One of the key parts of the balance sheet really is around transmission through the banking system. And from that perspective, we've seen the challenges to the banking system, even as the balance sheet remains as big as it is. And you've got this really new line item that they're dealing with, and that's the reverse repo facility yeah. and kind of how that affects everything. If we take a step back and we only look at excess reserves as being the important line item because it is the transmission into the financial system, they probably would want to see excess reserves remain ample so that there's not strain to the banking system. And broadly speaking, if we use history, that's about somewhere around 13% of overall deposits within the banking system. We're at about 16% now. So that's somewhere between seven hundred billion to maybe a trillion less uh, in excess reserves than where we are now. You know that is a number that we kind of get to sometime in the next nine months to let's say year, year and a half, um, depending on how much of the drawdown in the balance sheet comes from excess reserves relative to reverse repo. But that reverse repo facility is really the unknown. If um, money doesn't come out of reverse repo, we get to that ample reserve number—the um, lowest, uh, the lowest number of reserves that is comfortable for the banking system—within six to nine months. So it could be quite quick if, re- re- if reverse repo comes down as aggressively as it has over the course of the last, you know, let's say, month and a half since the debt ceiling. Then it gives them a much longer ramp time. But I would look at it from the perspective of how is the balance sheet going to be sized relative to bank reserves and you okay. know, whether or not this broader transmission mechanism has changed because of reverse repo and the just the absolute large amount of liquidity in the system. If they could get it back to pre-COVID levels, that would absolutely be a goal. But I don't think it's uh, realistic that the balance sheet is going to be able to get to that level, kind of given the strings that we're already seeing within the banking system. So
0: thinking about that, the time horizon, then, would you say that we are probably in a position to think about the end of QT by the middle of next year? Does that that make sense?
1: Yeah, for, for for certain, I you know I think those conversations are, are going to um, uh, accelerate as we get into the end of this year. Um, I don't see how we get QT ongoing beyond twenty twenty four at this point. Um, just because bank reserves have come off so aggressively during the early stages of QT, a little less now. Uh, again, repo is uh, picking up some of that um, excess weight, but a bigger balance sheet is probably something that we have as an enduring quality amongst most of the central banks, to be honest, post-COVID. Do you think, and this is related because reserves, of course,
0: are all about kind of inside money and then that fuels ideally credit creation. I mean, the senior loan officer surveys, as infrequent as they are and as often lagging as they are, don't make for pretty reading. And they're yet another thing you can point to as to whether, you know, the Fed might well be done. Do you think they consider that then, with respect to the level of reserves, or is it just too slow for them to think about? Do they look at, the, you know, maybe more real-time financial conditions as a way to
1: gauge that? No, I, I think I think it, it plays prominently. Powell referenced the fact that they were going to get the senior loan survey before, um, you know, a day or two before everybody else as they were going into the last meeting. So, so, so it's certainly something that they uh, look at quite, uh, quite closely. Um, yeah, yeah those, those numbers are already at kind of recessionary type levels. We haven't really seen a slowdown in actual lending consistent with just how tight that, that survey shows at this point. Um, so again, yeah. kind of the lagged effects are, are, are out there, but I do think it played prominently in their view that they needed to start walking more gingerly rather than carrying the big stick that they had for the better part of last year. Last item on the balance sheet
0: that I want to talk about, and and this is something that got a lot of attention from, especially the bear community. I won't name names here, but the rebuild of the TGA following the debt ceiling debacle or crisis or whatever you want to call it, we learned when that was resolved that it actually wasn't the 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 debt ceiling itself wasn't the problem. It was the resolution of the debt ceiling that was the problem because it would re- rebuild the TGA and in theory drain reserves faster. But of course, as you've talked about, the reverse repo facility picked up that slack. Can you talk through the mechanics of why we
1: avoided that that outcome? The money market uh, fund complex was the most aggressive bidder for those treasury securities. So. Yeah. Um, we didn't really need a private money, people taking money out of their bank accounts to buy treasuries to absorb all of the bills that were, um, that were being issued. That speaks to the amount of liquidity that's in the system. Um, that speaks to why the Fed needs to continue on this balance sheet process, um, because, because, um, liquidity is too big. But it also speaks to the fact that reverse repo is really altering the transmission mechanism in a way that we haven't seen before. So all of these money market funds bought the four to 500 billion in bills that uh, Treasury issued within the last six weeks or so, and they paid for it with reverse repo. So it wasn't pressuring the banking system, and in a normal... Kind of environment where we don't have reverse repo. It is excess reserves that get drawn down. That's kind of the cadence that we that we normally look at when we have a debt ceiling event. Uh, reserves go up because yep. the government is spending their money, um, and then once the government needs to take that money back, reserves go down. In this instance, this kind of reverse repo facility, which is almost like a shock absorber that's been created. Took on all of that excess capital that needed to be pulled out of the system, and and it did it in a way that really, I think, put more liquidity kind of into the system, and yeah. to a certain degree, um, helped risk assets, risk assets since since the debt ceiling. It certainly what
0: served as a shock absorber because we were talking, people were talking, not we. I won't use that word. It wasn't me.
1: Uh,
0: <laughs> people were talking about ten percent equity market corrections, and of course that that just obviously never materialized. We, we may well get that, but it's not going to be because of the TGA probably. Well, listen, Marv, Correct. I, Correct. we we always have to finish here with a view. The, the curve especially, I think, is interesting because we've had, as we talked about, CPI data that came in a little weaker than expected and, and showed this fall in headline inflation that was much more rapid than was expected. We've seen re-steepening of the curve. And I wanted to, to also marry that, of course, with the thoughts about short rates, where we're talking about higher for longer. Ballpark, what do you think the curve does here now, if higher for longer especially is realized? Do we see you know bearish re-steepenings of the curve are pretty rare? They tend to happen and then get quickly reversed as short rates catch up. Is that what we're talking about here? Or do you think this is just a continued flattening or a resumption of flattening, I yeah. should say?
1: I, you know what I, I don't i don't think we're going to um re see inversions that we saw in, in other words we're, we're 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 not getting back to minus 110 120 when it comes from a 2s 10s perspective the steepening of the curve is certainly one of the the bigger trades that are out there at this point i think that's i think it's going to take longer i think we're going to mm-hmm. remain inverted for much longer than we would normally remain um kind of given that we're at terminal Within the next week, um, you know, within the next couple of days, if you will. So, uh, if accounts want to really go after a steepening trade, I think it's going to be through the belly. So, you know, five thirty is probably how I, I would play that. I think twos tens wind up being a bit more stubborn. Um, there's a there's probably a fly trade um that's in there where mm-hmm. uh, the belly outperforms some of the wings. Um, I, I think that's how you approach the curve at this point um and really you know be cognizant that if we're talking about continued inversion of the 2s 10s we're getting um particularly if particularly if it's for the next 6 months or or more you're getting to historic degrees of inversion and that does have impacts on the banking system even if from an economic signaling perspective it's not as accurate um as let's say it's been in the past where you know once you get to once you get an inverted 2s 10s you have a recession within within the next year well you know what, we're going to be there pretty soon, and quite mm. frankly, we're, we're probably not going to be in a recession. So from that perspective, you know, it's pushed off, but um, that inverted curve does still have an impact on various financial assets. So for 10-year notes then,
0: where do you see year-end yields here?
1: Yeah, you know what, um, I, I think that we can get back to three and a quarter um, on the 10-year. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it would take a recession for us to push well below that and, um, you know, again, the, the whole lagged effect of... Um, how transmission is making its way into the economy, taking as long as it does. I mean, I don't see that by the end of this year. All right, Mark. Well, you, you mentioned I have a job in the Midwest that I need to uh, get an application <laughs> for. Um, you know, well, I've been trying well, well, to you, go you, back. You've got um, you've great uh, resume. as uh, we're adding iTunes and Spotify to to one of your accomplishments. So yeah, for sure. Exactly. I don't know if I'll be
0: in the media quite as much as Mr. Bullard, but I will certainly give it the old college try. Marv, it's been great to catch up. I think we have to call it there. Thanks, as always, though. Good to have you here. Thanks, Tim. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of Street Signals from the research team at State Street Global Markets. This podcast and all of our research can be found at our web portal, Insights. There, you'll be able to find all of our latest thinking on macroeconomics and markets, where we leverage our deep experience in research on investor behavior, inflation, risk, and media sentiment, all of which goes into building an award-winning strategy product. If you're a client of State Street, hit us up there at globalmarkets.statestreet.com. We'll see you next time. This communication is provided by State Street Bank and Trust Company, hereafter referred to as State Street, and is for informational purposes only, and is not intended to suggest or recommend any transaction, investment, or investment strategy. It does not constitute investment research, nor does it purport to be comprehensive or intended to replace the exercise of an investor's own, careful, independent review and judgment regarding any investment decision. This communication and the information herein does not constitute investment legal or tax advice, and is not a solicitation to buy or sell securities or any financial instrument, nor is it intended to constitute a binding contractual arrangement or commitment by State Street of any kind. The information provided does not take into account any particular investment objectives, strategies, investment horizon, or tax status. The views expressed herein are the views of State Street as of the date specified and are subject to change without notice based on market and other conditions. The information provided herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable at the time of publication, Nonetheless, we make no representations or assurances that the information is complete or accurate, and you should not place any reliance on said information. State Street hereby disclaims any warranty and all liability, whether arising in contract, tort, or otherwise, for any losses, liabilities, damages, expenses, or costs, either direct, indirect, consequential, special, or punitive, arising from or in connection with any use of this communication and or the information herein. State Street or its affiliates may from time to time as principal or agent for its own account or for those of its clients have positions in and or actively trade in financial instruments or other products identical to or economically related to those discussed in this communication. State Street may have a commercial relationship with issuers of financial instruments or other products discussed in this communication. This communication may contain information deemed to be forward-looking statements. These statements are based on assumptions, analyses, and expectations of State Street in light of its experience and perception of historical trends, current conditions, expected future developments, and other factors it believes appropriate under the circumstances. All information is subject to change without notice. This communication or any portion hereof may not be redistributed without the prior written consent of State Street. Past performance is no guarantee of future results.